Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is episode 199 of the show, and uh, I hope you're all hunkering down, helping flatten the curve and staying safe inside with family if you're lucky enough or, uh, you know, enjoying some time at home, getting a lot of work done. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Gleb Sapersky joining us, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Gleb is an expert on making better decisions. He's studied behavioral decision-making throughout his entire career. He's also a professor at The Ohio State University. I think you guys are definitely going to learn a lot from this episode. And as always, if you enjoy it, leave us a like, share it with your friends, cross social media, leave us a review on iTunes. All of your support really does help our show. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Congress, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Gleb Sapersky joining us, and Dr. Sapersky is a consultant, speaker, coach, trainer, and author whose mission is to protect business leaders from dangerous cognitive biases and help them make better data-driven decisions. Using his experience over 20 years, Gleb has written two books, with his most recent book becoming a bestseller, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, we're excited to talk with Gleb and learn more about cognitive biases, 
how they affect our decision making and how you can learn to avoid them. Welcome to Conquering Columbus Club. Thank you so much, Mike and Josh. Appreciate you welcoming me here. Yeah, it's exciting to have you here, and it's uh, great to have you here in the office in uh, some pretty crazy times. You know, we're all <laughs> dealing with coronavirus, elbow bumps, fist bumps, sure. but uh, appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. So one of the first places we like to start, Gleb, is just talk a little bit about life leading up today. So anything that stands out to you, childhood, growing up, mm-hmm. anything that kind of affect your path on your way to where you're at today? Well, childhood actually did really strongly affect my paths. And the reason I got into what I'm doing right now, decision-making, risk management, disaster avoidance, were some kind of disastrous decisions that my parents took. And already as a kid, I saw that they were kind of not very helpful. So for example, my parents were like the kind of decision-makers that everyone is advised to be going with your gut, following your intuitions, trusting your heart. Unfortunately, their gut often disagreed with each other. So they had a lot of conflicts. They had a lot of fights. For example, my mom liked to buy nice clothing. So she'd go out and she'd buy a $100 sweater. And my dad was kind of a cheapskate. So he'd, you know, when she'd come home, he'd yell at her and say that no sweater should be worth over $20. And then they'd get her going into it and get into more things. Now, that wasn't the worst. I mean, that already impacted me as a kid, these constant ongoing things. But the worst time was when my dad, so he was a real estate agent, and so he worked based on commissions, and his salary was variable. There was about a six-month period where he made quite a lot of money, but he hid it from my mom, said he made very little money, probably he didn't want her to spend on sweaters. And so what happened was that he bought a house, an apartment elsewhere, and leased it out to some folks. And a couple of years later, when my mom found out, she was very angry. She was very pissed, very upset, like her trust in him was broken. And so she ended up kicking him out of the house. They separated for a while. He had to live in that apartment he he leased out. Eventually, they reconciled and they moved back in, but she could never really trust him again. And that period was really hard for me as a kid, you know, living with my mom, seeing my dad pretty rarely, knowing that they were having these tensions. That made me really wonder, how do we make our decisions? And why did nobody sit me down as a kid and teach me, hey, kiddo, this is how you make your decisions? Why did nobody teach me that in school, in college? That's not something you get taught. So I decided to explore this topic. I decided to study it myself. And after I started studying it, people started asking me about it. That's how I became a coach, consultant, speaker, trainer. Pretty soon, I ran out of the resources and popular literature available on decision-making, so I had to go into academia to study this formally. So I spent 15 years as a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist, including seven years teaching at a high stage as a professor, go Bucks. So that's another part of my background. And I brought all of that together, 20 years of experience consulting, coaching, and training, and the 15 years of experience as a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist in my latest book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. So taking it back before we dive too much detail into all that and unpack everything uh, towards the end of your story, did you grow up here in the United States? I was 10 when my parents took me from my former place of residence where I was born, which was the Republic of Moldova. It was a small country in Eastern Europe, which was liberated as part of the fall of the Soviet Union. So I'm actually very glad that they left. In 1996, the, there was a World Values Survey conducted, and it found that Moldova is the least happy country in the world. I was shocked when I heard that. I mean, I had no idea. I was 10 when I left in 1991. But that made me especially glad that they left. (laughs) So you come here to the United States, and where do you do all your your personal education at? I went to New York University. I mean, I went to, I lived in New York, so New York City, and got my, you know, high school degree there, uh, high school education there. Then I got my college degree. I got my bachelor's at New York University. Then I got my 
master's at Harvard University and my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. And that's when, after that, I was taught a little bit there, and then I was hired here at Ohio State. And your undergrad was in what? The history of behavioral science. So looking at how people make decisions in historical and contemporary settings, so the behavioral science. And then as part of that, I studied cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics. So the, the master's was in the cognitive... The master's was in the specialty, in regional specialty, ge geographic specialty. And then I went for a PhD specifically in the history of behavioral science. Out of curiosity, I guess, what types of experiments and, and studies do you guys run in a behavioral science setting? So, for example, one of the studies that I ran was looking at what causes people to believe in falsehoods and how do you change people's minds to actually believe in the facts. So if you look at things like hey, how do you get, and that's one of the fun, most fundamental things in decision-making. You know, when you have the phrase garbage in, garbage out, <laughs> and getting the right information is incredibly important in making good decisions, risk management, and so on, disaster avoidance, what I consult on. So my, I did a lot of research on how do you get people to actually shift their minds toward act, believing the facts, which is surprisingly hard to do because mm. our intuitions, our gut reactions are not actually evolved to orient toward the truth. They're, oriento, they're oriented toward if you're having an argument with someone. Generally, it's not about trying to win, trying to figure out the truth. Generally, about, it's about winning for your perspective, partially because of tribalism. That's how we, our minds work. So to change that, you need to change people's identities. This is something that we're finding. You need to change how people think of themselves and what they think of is, as truth. You need to change their identities and sense of belonging as belonging to the group of people who tell the truth as opposed to belonging to the group of people who believe X or something like that. And you need to shift, you need to do some things like help people make a pre-commitment to truthfulness before the facts. So, make an, so for example, ethical codes of honor. When colleges have codes of honor, students are quite a bit less likely to cheat because they make a pre-commitment before the fact, before they take the exam to be honorable rather than you know after the after rather than in the moment when they have the temptation of taking of be of cheating on the exam that would be much more difficult for, to get them to not cheat if they are haven't made that pre-commitment earlier so that's the th kind of stuff that i researched and uh, looked at various interventions and what actually works and what doesn't so you dive from that research into writing your first book is that directly afterwards or how does that coincide it was pretty much based on the research, so I was popularizing. My first book was actually an academic book, which you know, so is really dense, and I don't want to focus on that. The, my second book, popular, the first popular book, was called The Truth Seeker's Handbook, a science-based guide. So very naturally a result of the kind of research I did. So looking at how do we figure out what's true and how do we change our minds toward believing what's true and making good decisions based on it. So that was for a broad audience and specifically oriented toward the everyday person. So that's not specifically oriented toward business leaders and professionals. So my second book was oriented more toward business leaders and professionals, and it took a lot of my consulting, coaching, and training experiences, so I brought that into it. After you wrote that first book, did you begin to have business leaders and uh, different businesses in general reach out to you for these engagements, or did you seek them out personally? Well, it was both. So partially, I wanted to speak. I wanted to train people on the book, so I would reach out and say, hey, do you want me to do a lunchtime talk for your company? As well as once the book became more popular, 
then business leaders would want me to talk to their companies because they saw that you know their employees don't necessarily believe in the facts because it's very uncomfortable to orient toward the truth and so i had some of both with this book never go with your gut i have much more of people reaching out to me okay so what's it like writing a book in general right we talk a lot about you know the content of the book and we'll definitely ask you some questions related to that but just writing a book and and getting your thoughts on a paper and everything you learned in those consulting and everything else, how do you jam that into one one book? So you all always want to start from the end and you want to think about what your audience wants. What does your audience want? So this was an audience of professionals ranging from solopreneurs to business, small business owners to business leaders, HR professionals, traders, whatever, and all the way to the C-suite. So everything. And so my thought pattern was, what would they want? What would benefit them? How would they best absorb this information? And after thinking about the readers, I wanted to think about what kind of information do I want to convey to them? And so as part of that, I would then thought about the kind of information I want to convey to it and then organize it into a logical structure, into a progression structure. So from an introduction that goes into the broad topic of what's this stuff about, then to individual chapters, hitting various points of cognitive biases, decision-making, and then into the assessment at the end, where after you already know the stuff, you can assess where in your company these problems take place and how you can address them. So that's kind of the structure of the book. So with your first book, you know, starting with the end in mind, when somebody walks away from reading that book, what was your hope that they would take away and how would they better themselves as an individual from diving into the content that you were putting out? First, for the first book, The Truth Seekers Handbook, my goal was for them to be more suspicious of their inclinations to believe certain things and doubt themselves. You know, it's not a comfortable thing to doubt yourself, to go, it takes you outside of your comfort zone to doubt yourself, but to actually doubt yourself and say, hey, is this thing that I believe, which feels true, is it actually true? <laughs> and how do I figure out if I actually believe the truth or not? How do I figure out if, you know, the person who I, who you're my partner, my lover, my spouse, do they actually believe the things that I think they believe? You know, there's 40% divorce rate in this country. And it's one of the biggest reasons is that people believe myths about their spouses. So that's kind of one of the areas. And what about business? If I think that everything is going well, you know, there was an interesting study conducted of a few years ago of 1,087 board members who fired their CEOs, their, their chief executive officers, and of 286 companies. And the top, one of the top five reasons, 23% of the CEOs were fired for denialism, meaning denying negative facts about the company, about the truth of reality about the company. That's very sad, but that's what happens because CEOs, they feel good about themselves, they feel good about their companies, and they find it very troubling and very hard to think that, hey, you know, there's a pro serious problem out there. We see this right now with the COVID-19 epidemic widely, but a good example recently was Boeing, so with, with Dennis Spielenberger. So when the 737 MAX was grounded, he said, you know, hey, it was grounded in March 2019, he said, we'll be flying by May. May is coming up, not flying, so it's like, okay, definitely flying by July. July is coming up, not flying, is like, okay, surely flying by October. And you know, end of the September coming up, not flying, clearly not flying in October. He's like, okay, definitely, definitely by the end of December. You know, the end of December coming up, you know, not flying. He's like, okay, totally, absolutely flying in March 2020. And the board fires him. <laughs> and 
one of the main reasons they said they fired him was because of his denialism, was because of his excessive optimism, predictions which didn't come true. And that cost Boeing way a lot of money, a great deal of money. Of course, the 346 deaths, the initial screw-ups, and the 737 MAX were huge. But their inability to deal effectively with the consequences of the 737 MAX screw-ups was a major, major factor to them losing way more money than they should have. And Dennis Millenberger was appropriately blamed for it and fired. So that's the kind of thing that people would not do <laughs> after reading that book. So we can probably all look back and either in ourselves or in group settings or business settings, find uh, areas where we had a bias towards a certain inclination, found ourselves to be false, and, and we truly believed it at heart. But without giving away the total gist of somebody reading your book, you know, what are some of the steps that they can take to check themselves and not fully doubt themselves 24-7, mm-hmm. but be realistic about, about what is really going on within their head? So first thing they need to do is figure out what are their predilections, what are their tendencies, what kind of mistakes do they tend to make. Business leaders, so I'm a business leader, I run a company of six people called Disaster Avoidance Experts, which does training, consulting, and coaching. People like myself, entrepreneurs, we tend to be very optimistic. And this applies to everyone from Dennis Millenberger, you know, at the top of Boeing, to someone like me running a six-people company. It, we tend to be very optimistic because that's kind of what helps us go ahead and motivates us to do things, to be leaders, to inspire others. But the optimism is good for inspiring others and for motivating us, but it's bad for actually making good decisions because we tend to make a lot of mistakes like Dennis Muhlenberg <laughs> did. And I tend to make a lot of mistakes because I think the world is you know, going to be nice and the grass is green on the other side of the hill and I have exaggerated expectations about myself and other people. Well, the, green, the grass is often yellow on the other side of the hill and it's very intuitive for me to believe that and remember that. So I need to learn and I needed to learn that this is a tendency for me, one of the over 100 cognitive biases that we tend to suffer from and how cognitive biases are the specific decision-making errors we make because of how our brain is wired. So it's only one out of over 100 of these. So you need to learn about which ones you tend to be most prone to. And knowing that I tend to be optimistic, there are specific strategies that I can put in place to address my optimism. So first of all, understanding that whatever I think will happen, it will be less likely to be positive and good for me, more likely to be negative, that's one thing. So control for my optimism, be more pessimistic than I intuitively want to be. And that's kind of for more everyday decisions. For larger decisions, more serious things, I need to run it by them by a pessimist, someone who is the opposite tendency, who thinks the world is bad and hostile and the grass is always yellow on the other side of the hill even though it's sometimes green that doesn't mean i always need to listen to this person but what i should not do and what i'm not doing is hire people like that into my is hire people who are optimists into my company because a company full of optimists they're people like me you know we have 20 ideas before breakfast and we think all of them are brilliant Well, if I have pessimists in my company, and I do, I make sure to give it to the pessimist. And the pessimist says, well, you know, these 20 have baked potatoes. Maybe these three are worth finishing baking. And then they figure out all the flaws because they're terrible at generating ideas. But they're good at figuring out flaws in ideas and fixing those flaws. That's their strength. So both optimists and pessimists have their strengths. So working together with them well, that's how you collaborate effectively with someone who has that opposite tendency. And then that's how you 
make, want to make sure that you don't have a company only of optimists or only of pessimists. That's how you want to make sure that you have people who complement your strengths and address your weaknesses. Hey there, Congress. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors here on the show. Studio 301. Mike and I, we've been working with Studio 301 on our rebrand, doing our website, doing some new photography, working on some logo adjustments, and just really positioning Conquering Columbus uh, in a more professional light. And I can tell you, Mike, it's been the funnest experience and the easiest experience I've ever had working with any type of creative agency. They come to the table with all kinds of awesome ideas that we're really excited about. And everything that we've come up with so far and that we're about to put out is is awesome. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I've, I haven't been more excited about pretty much anything since we've done the podcast. Like, I really enjoy talking to all our guests, but this rebrand is just painted in a whole new light. And, you know, Kyle and his team have been a pleasure to work with. They've gone out of their way to go above and beyond to make this thing really special. So I think we're really excited to release this rebrand to everybody out there listening. And uh, I hope you guys love it as much as we do. And one of the best things is the rebrand not only positions Conquering Columbus as a whole, but all of our guests and more of a uh, professional and clean and formalized look that you know they deserve. We have super, super high quality, amazing people on here, and I think that this is gonna represent them really well, so it's been great. So thanks again to Studio 301. Yeah, if you guys wanna learn more about Studio 301, go check out the links down in the show notes. Help support Kyle and local teams here in Columbus, and uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the interview. So optimism versus pes- pessimism is a good example of a cognitive bias. What are some other examples of something that you would call a cognitive bias? Sure. Uh, not only I call cognitive bias, that's what the research is. You can look up on Wikipedia, there's a list of over 100 cognitive biases out there, and you'll find out You know, some of them are pretty, pretty sad. So some of the big ones for business leaders would be confirmation bias, where we, and for anyone actually, any professional, confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs, and we tend to ignore information that doesn't. So for example, if you believe that the COVID-19 coronavirus will be a short-lived phenomenon, you'll tend to believe that even though the large majority of information suggests it'll be way for going on for several years at least, maybe potentially our whole lifetime. That's one example. But any kind of belief, if you believe that the new product that you're launching will do great, you will tend to ignore information that it won't do great. And that's a big problem. So that's one of the problems. Another problem is going to be called is a loss aversion, where we tend to do things that avoid losses. And it sounds not bad on the face of it, but the problem with it is that we tend that Whenever we make changes in the company, in our professional work, we inherently in, we inherently have losses because we need to invest money to make a change. And if you don't make that change, eventually your business model won't work because we live in a very disrupted world that changes all the time. So you need to overcome this in, inherent intuitive tendency to not like change because of the disruption causes and the losses associated with it for higher gains in the end as you adapt to change. So that's another one that's pretty big. So I can go on, but those are kind of a couple of examples. So it's interesting because what you're describing to some level, at least in my brain, uh, we had a former guest on here, Mark Sellers wrote a book called Blind Spots. And his big, uh, one of the the big approaches or points from that book was that individuals, especially leaders, tend to use their their biggest uh, resource or their biggest strength in life as also their biggest crutch and their downfall. So, for example, their ability to um, work super hard and constantly push at things, but then sometimes mm-hmm. you push too hard and, and you start frustrating other people. The ability to be overly optimistic about everything, but then it causing you downfall in so many different areas. 
where as an individual and uh, just thinking about my personal path to becoming a strong leader, mm-hmm. how can I sit back and realize when I'm making a cognitive bias or should I just approach every single decision that I make and, and just do it slower or is there a process that I should go through and run all my major decisions through? Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It does make sense. So there are a couple of things that I'm going to, a couple of things in there that I want to address. So first of all, not it's not the case that all of your strengths, are, all of your biggest strengths are also going to be accompanied by biggest weaknesses. So confirmation bias, where we ignore information that doesn't confirm to our beliefs, is never a strength. <laughs> Optimism bias or pessimism bias can be in different situations a strength. But the you know loss aversion is never going to be a strength because you definitely need to suffer losses in order to adapt to new situations. So loss aversion is never going to be a strength. Some of these cognitive biases are never going to be good for you. <laughs> Some of them are going to be beneficial in certain, certain circumstances, like optimism bias and pessimism bias, just to be clear on that. Uh, second, on the question of processes. So I describe in my book, Never Go With Your Gut, as well as the Truth Seekers Handbook. So Truth Seekers Handbook focuses on figuring out the truth. Processes for that, the Never Go With Your Gut figures is on decision-making. So I'm going to talk about that for decision-making. There are two things I describe in the book. One is for big, long-term decisions. And another process is much quicker for decisions where you want to not screw up. So you it depends on which kind of decision you're making. If you're making a major decision, bet the company decision or something that really impacts your bottom line, something let's say you figure will make at least a 5% impact on your bottom line, you want to go for a long process that takes about an hour where you really consider all the aspects of the decision and address them effectively, slowing down and all of that. And I can talk through that. But for many things that are in every day. And that process, the longer one, is meant to get as perfect a decision as possible, given our limited information <laughs> and ambiguity about the future. Now, if you do just want to minimize risks, avoid disasters, there's a much shorter process. It involves asking five questions, and five questions that you should ask about any decision that you don't want to screw up. This is not meant to make the perfect decision. It's meant to minimize risks and minimize problems in decision. So first per- Question, what important information didn't I yet fully consider? So what evidence aren't you taking into account? Again, our intuition is to look for evidence that supports our current beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. So let's say you're writing an important email to a client. You can be doing that from any position, whether you're a leader, whether you're a solopreneur or whatever, writing an important email to a client. Now, you might not want to take into account information that says that the client will not do what you want the client to do. It's an important email, you want to try to persuade the client of something. However, if you actually take that information into account and include it in the email and say, hey, you might not want to do this because of these reasons. Here's why I think these reasons are not applicable in this case. So you address the client's concerns in advance and say, that will make a much stronger email, make the client much more likely to do what you want them to do. Second, what dangerous judgment errors haven't I yet considered? Well, so think about the cognitive biases. My book, Never Go With Your Gut, talks about the 30 most dangerous ones for decision-making. So learn about them, think about them. Whatever ones that are applicable in this situation, you might be too optimistic or too pessimistic about the email, depending on your personality, and address them. Third, what would a trusted and objective advisor tell you to do? So think about somebody who's a trusted and objective advisor to you. What would that person tell you to do about this situation? Step outside of yourself and say, hey, what would I tell a close friend to do who is in this situation? You get about 50% of this benefit by stepping outside of yourself and asking yourself that question. And you get the other 50% of the benefit by you know, calling this person or if you're a millennial, texting this person. 
Next, how can I address in advance all the ways that this could fail? So how can you address the email? So think about, let's say your client is in a bad mood. You know, maybe their kids had a toothache and, you know, have been screaming all night and they couldn't sleep. What can you do in that situation? Well, imagine that you're reading the email in a bad mood. Revise the email. Read it from the perspective of someone who's in a bad mood and revise it to address all the ways that the email can be negatively interpreted, hostilely interpreted in some way. So remove ambiguities. And finally, what would cause me to revisit this decision? What would cause me to change my mind about this decision? That's the final question. Now, with the email, a good example is, hey, if I don't hear from my client in a week, I will give my client a call. That will give you a clear decision-making revision point. Whereas otherwise, you'll just be thinking about, oh, when am I going to hear about, about the email? You know, thinking every day, what's happening? Why is my client not responding? If you make the set revision point in a week, you'll just let it go and you will go on with your whatever you're doing, whatever other professional activities you're doing, and you know you have a revision point in a week and that's when you can focus on the email again. So those five questions, going through them, it's super simple, super quick, super easy. I just talk through them in a couple of minutes and that will help you really reduce a lot of risks, a lot of problems in your decision. Think about how much better you'll be off if you ask those five questions about any decision that you don't want to screw up in your daily life. Right, and I mean, it applies to more than, you know, just business, it's your daily life, it your is. decisions are going through, you know, at home, buying yep. a car, anything like that. So it, it I really like those questions and it, I like having a framework to think about because my mind does not think in frameworks. Mm -hmm. It's very scatterbrained. So mm -hmm. having some, a tool like this for me is definitely, definitely valuable. So what are some examples, I guess, of cognitive biases coming into play outside of a business setting? We've talked about a couple of uh, business setting cognitive biases, but there's tons of settings for personal life where some cognitive biases can be harmful. Sure, happy to express this. So one of the one of the common cognitive biases is called the illusion of transparency. Now, the illusion of transparency refers to the fact that when we communicate, we tend to think that the other person is getting our message a hundred percent because we're communicating. We feel good about ourselves. We feel comfortable with ourselves, and we feel comfortable with our message because we express it in the way that we want to express it. We feel right, and we therefore think that the other person is getting it a hundred percent. Not true at all. <laughs> The other person may not have the same communication style that we have. They may not have attached the same meaning to words that we do. You know, for example, what do you mean when you say a couple? And what does the other person mean when they hear a couple? What do you mean when you say several and the other person thinks several? What do you mean when you say a few and the other person thinks a few? A lot of people have different associations with these. And of course, you'll miscommunicate often. So this is just about the meaning of the term. There's also sp specific filters for which we filter uh, conversations, messages that are coming to us. So a lot of relationship conflicts, a lot of relationship problems result from the illusion of transparency, where we think we're clearly communicating to whoever we're in a relationship with, whether it's our spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, whether it's some friend, whether it's a community member, family member, we think we're communicating 100% and they're getting maybe 30% of the message. <laughs> and so that results in a great deal of miscommunications, misunderstandings, conflicts that really harm our relationships. So that's another example of where, the, and uh, I actually have a book coming out, my next book, it's called The Blind Spots Between Us, which focuses specifically on relationships and how cognitive biases damage our relationships. So business leaders out there, or young professionals or aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening, what about it uh, from your book or other outside advice do you think it's crucial for them to know that we haven't covered yet regarding this topic and making um, high-level executive decisions? 
One of the things that you want to be thinking about, especially with the COVID-19 epidemic going on right now, is that we tend to be very short-term oriented. And that's something I want to very much highlight. In the savannah environment, which is what our brains are adapted for, hunter-gatherers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, we responded to threats with the fight-or-flight response when we had to jump at 100 shadows in order to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. You might have heard of it as the saber-toothed tiger response. Now, that was great for the savannah environment when threats were intense, immediate, and we had to deal with them right there and then. But in the business environment or in the life environment, large majority of threats that we deal with are not immediate. You know, it's not like the bus is moving at you. When the bus is, mo is moving at you, you definitely don't want to think about it. You just want to get out of the way. Fight or flight is good in that situation. But when you're dealing with something like the COVID-19 epidemic or a number of other problems, you don't want to just react to it. And a number of people, very many people, are just reactive to the COVID-19 epidemic and whatever other problems they're facing. You know, going out, doing panic buying, not thinking about the long term. I mean, from a business perspective, COVID-19 will be around clearly for the next couple of years until they invent a vaccine. Hopefully this vaccine will be effective. If it's not very effective, like the flu vaccine, which is only 50% effective, it will be around the rest of our lifetime, which is quite possible. And that means that you as a business leader or as a professional solopreneur, whatever, you need to think about changing your business model, changing your relationship, changing your networking to be socially distanced for the long term, because that's the reality of the situation. So you want to be thinking about several years, not emergency mode as so many business leaders are at this moment. So that's the kind of Thing that you want to be thinking about going much more toward the long term and avoiding short-term thinking. Right. So with the example of COVID-19 as a backdrop, right, a lot of people, I guess, would be, uh, I guess it wouldn't be loss aversion, but it would be a cognitive bias to assume that the virus will only last a couple of weeks or things yes. will be back to normal in yep. three weeks because, Optim you know. Optimism and uh, so very, very optimistic and hyperbolic discounting. That's where we are short-term oriented discount the long-term. Right. So it's important to think about it from a perspective of what if this goes on for a couple of years, three yes. years, might not, but data says that it looks like it's going to be around a while, so we should prepare for that situation. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. What are some other things that we could be doing to better prepare for COVID-19, I mean, I know you just recently released an article mm -hmm. on this, so I uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, yeah, I published an op-ed in the Columbus Dispatch and had an interview for 10TV on this topic. So what you want to be doing as a business, you want to be changing your business model. Business model, that means the internal business model and the external business model. The internal business model is your internal organization. How are you going to be internally organized? Right now, a lot of businesses have told their employees, you know, try to work from home if you can. Certainly don't come to work if you're sick. Try to work from home if you can. That's not really sustainable in the long term to just say, try to work from home. You need to change the organization of your company if you do intend to have your employees work from home, which seems like a pretty good idea in the current environment. You want to change the structure of your your company to be virtual, to have virtual teams. You want to learn, have professional development on what does it mean to run a virtual team? Because yes, it will work in the short term to in the next couple of weeks, 
for the relationships that are developed and the networking reporting structures that are there right now to work. But virtual teams are going to be in many ways very different from typical teams, from the team in-person teams that we're used to. So you need to be understand and adapt to the virtual team environment. And there's going to be very many things that are going to be different around it. So that's internal organization. External, you want to be thinking about how is your service delivery model going to change? Your Whatever you're delivering, your services, your goods, you'll need to change the way you interact with your clients, with your customers. So think about how you will do that. How Think about your social distancing, virtual interaction, virtual service delivery, whatever you need to do. How will you change your business model for that long term? So that, those are some things that you want to be thinking about. Another kind of thing that you want to be thinking about is if you're a business leader, how can you support your employees who are really in a tough, stressed situation right now. Many of them might not be thinking about the long term themselves. How can you help them think about the long term? How can you protect your HR, your human resources? Very important. You also want to be thinking about how can you as a business, as an organization, make sure that networking happens appropriately. Our business relationships are the most valuable resource, really, our business relationships of any business. So if you don't have those relationships, and those relationships are reinforced by face-to-face -face contact, whether at you know, lunch events, networking events, going to conferences, those won't be around. So you need to think about how are you going to reinforce and strengthen those business relationships in the long term through social networking, through LinkedIn, through various tools, but you gotta be thinking about that right now. And you wanna be thinking about the fact that if you are going to be an early mover, you are going to have a competitive advantage compared to your competition who will not be prepared, who will be in short-term emergency mode as opposed to realizing that we are in a new normal. That means that we need to change our business model and so on that I talked about. So you will be quite a bit ahead of your competition and you'll gain a competitive edge. Your competitors will be hobbled. Some of them will go bankrupt. You've got to be prepared to seize their market share. Make sure that you can that you have the resources to do that. Invest resources and prepare to do that. Make sure that you have the resources to hire their good employees, who they'll be letting go because you know they are going to be hobbled. And be able to, if you know, if they go bankrupt, to buy their resources at a fire sale. So you need to have the resources to do that. So think about that. Think about your competitive advantage and the long term. So you mentioned a little bit about a third book earlier on in the conversation. You know, what do the goals look like for you for the foreseeable future, whether it's just you personally or your team and the company that you're working with? So for the book itself or more broadly? Uh, we could talk about both. So for the book itself, I wrote this book. It's A lot of it is about personal relationships. Partially I wrote it because well, probably the major reason. So my wife about five years ago had a major nervous breakdown. And it was very serious. She was very stressed out, very anxious, very depressed. It really impacted our relationship in a big way. And we're very strained. It was very hard. It was just really tragic. So I don't think our marriage would have survived if I didn't have these methods of addressing cognitive biases using effective techniques, tools of, co of cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive neuroscience, behavioral economics, which I now brought inside to address the problems, serious problems that our marriages were developing just because of her nervous breakdown, how much more anxious and depressed and sad she was. So being able to apply these tools to our marriage really helped save our marriage. It was very important to me. And I thought that, hey, you know, if this is something that can help me save my marriage, this is something that can help a lot of people with their relationships, and it could be really incredibly helpful for them. So I talked about it to a number of people, oh, 
ran it by them, started writing articles on this, and indeed people really found it very helpful. So I decided to write this book as a way of really giving back and helping people improve their relationships. It's It has some stuff about business, maybe about 25% of it is about business relationships, but it's mostly about personal relationships. So my goal for that book is for people to not screw up their relationships and to save and protect their relationships. Now, my goal for the company, of course, more broadly, is to avoid disasters. That's the point of disaster avoidance experts, the company, and that's what I want to do, help companies manage risks, avoid problems, avoid disasters, make the best decisions possible, the wisest and most profitable decisions, because my value set is utilitarian. So I've always been really passionate about helping people avoid suffering of all sorts. I do a lot of nonprofit work. I'm, a, I, uh, I'm the chair of the volunteer chair of board of a nonprofit. Uh, so that's something I'm really passionate about. And I'm really passionate about helping people avoid suffering and improve their flourishing. So I'm really hopeful that my, and I know that it's already the case, that my work with leaders helps those leaders make much better decisions for their companies and avoid suffering and improve flourishing for their employees and for other stakeholders, for their communities around them as well. So that's something I'm really passionate about and that's what I want to see for my company. Perfect. Well, Gleb, I think uh, it's a good place to pivot towards uh, our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. Mm. And without telling you too much about why we picked that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Oh, definitely going away from my intuitions. By That's the definition of being uncomfortable. Comfortable is just the natural primitive savage state of going with your gut, following your intuition, going with your heart. Now, going outside of your comfort zone is the state of being civilized, being adapted to the modern environment, not going with your gut, not feeling, not going with your intuitions, not following your heart. So being uncomfortable is very important for me. It's very important for me to understand that, hey, right now I feel like doing something, but that feeling may not be the right feeling about what is the right thing for me, for my goals, for my civilized values, as opposed to the primitive savage ones. So it's very important for me to, to be comfortable with discomfort and develop that sense of, you know, everything from, let's say, the going from my natural, intuitive, optimistic arrogance to developing the humility of knowing and thinking that I'm definitely wrong in some things. I know that because I've seen that in the past. So try to figure out, hey, have a mindset not of, you know, try to prove I'm right in all things, but try to figure out where I'm wrong and then improve my thinking on that. That's a very uncomfortable mindset, but it's one that's very helpful for becoming less wrong in the future. So that's something I'm passionate about. And of course, making the best decisions sometimes are very uncomfortable. So being uncomfortable is something I'm really focusing on being more comfortable with. I really like what you said about uh, stop trying to prove I'm right and think about where I'm wrong. Uh, it's kind of an interesting concept and I think it's something great to take away, but uh, Gleb, thanks so much for taking your time to talk with us. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and talk about your book. Thank you so much, Mike and Josh. Really appreciate you inviting me. Yep, and Conquerors, thanks so much for lis listening. That was Dr. Gleb Sapersky, and if you enjoyed his conversation with us, you want to learn more about his book, check out the links down in the show notes. It'll all be down there, and uh, again, appreciate all of you tuning in every week. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like, share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. 
Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.